This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Armand Childers, and I have the great pleasure of hosting Irvin Malakai today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Irvin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here. Before we jump into your wonderful book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, I'm uh, an assistant professor. No, I'm sorry, an associate. As recently, an associate professor of studies um, at the University of British Columbia. And I'm also the director of the Center for European Studies here at the university. And my area of studies, um, research and teaching entails uh, queer studies, German studies, and I focus on, on, on media histories anywhere from the sort of uh, late 18th to, uh, century to today. And I mean, your book also brings all of these areas together in a wonderful and creative way. Um, can you tell us, I mean, so, I mean, your book is called Andas as the Andan, and it came out of uh, McGill Queen's University Press this year, right? In 2023. Um, how did your path cross with the film Andas as the Andan? Um, and maybe like for those of us who don't know, uh, can you tell us a bit about the film itself? I, I'd be glad to. So uh, I talk a little bit about the history of my personal history with regard to the film and introduction of the book. So I'm, I'm very excited that, that you are also asking about this. Um, I encountered this film as a graduate student uh, in a PhD program in German studies in a cl- class on Weimar cinema. Um, uh, the film itself was not taught there. But um, I was doing a little bit of research on another very famous film from the era, um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And in some of the readings uh, about uh, Caligari, in particular, Konrad Veit, one of the main sort of performers and very famous performance in the film, um, I was I encountered uh, I encountered a mention of this film. So um, uh, it was described as the first film on um, homosexual rights um, in the German context. And I believe actually that reference also made it sound like it was the first gay movie ever made and uh it turned out that's actually not true at all but um the the reference itself made me absolutely curious as a queer scholar a person interested in german cinema history um i absolutely became um uh drawn to it um having said that um i ended up not doing much work on that film in that course nor have i really encountered much information about it since in my professional path and um very very much later sort of uh, in, in in my second or third year as as a faculty member, I started pursuing um, queer studies more seriously um, and uh, wanted to pick up this film, um, uh, which was um, uh, something that I've always sort of uh, thought of fondly. um, And I also taught um, in uh, a lot of the courses that I that I uh, had a privilege to teach. And and that kind of that's kind of what brought me onto the sort of like um, idea of of writing an entire book on a topic, in particular, trying to activate it for an audience, um, uh, summarize some of the scholarship on it, but also advance some of my own theses about it, uh, make it accessible for um, for an audience um, who might know the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but who might not be familiar with Andas Alstiandan. So I wanted to kind of actually kind of bring this film into the foreground much more than it has been in the past. 
and I mean, maybe for those of us who don't know the, much about the film, the plot, or anything, like what what is what is what makes this film special? So the film itself was conceived as um, uh, there are, there are two sort of like underlying bigger projects for a film. On the one hand, it was conceived as a pop culture uh, melodrama. It was made for for the masses, but at the same time, it was um, uh, in, informed by the work. Um, and an advocacy of uh, the very famous sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld, who um, is listed as a co-conspirator behind the project alongside the director, Richard Oswald. And so uh, one of the things that, uh, that Hirschfeld wanted to accomplish is popularize some of his, his theses and some of his work in seeking to abolish um, paragraph 175 of the German penal code, which criminalized male homosexuality. So there was a decided um, interest in in um, a, a political mission that this film um, advanced. Uh, and it was in a service of kind of like trying to take down this legal code that variously suppressed the lives of many queer men. Um, and the plot itself, however, um, so interestingly enough, the, the film was not a, a documentary. Um, very early on, some of the people who were making similar films, such as this, um, the so-called Aufklärungsfilme or Enlightenment films or social hygiene films, um, which are a device to kind of like advance a particular kind of social mission or uh, social reform and, and, and bring about social reform, um, realized that documentary formats were too boring. <laughs> and um, they were not necessarily interesting for the masses. And so they were like, oh, well, how can we advance film in this sort of social reform way if it's so boring for the masses? And so they're like, oh, just wrap it in a melodramatic plot line and everyone will want to watch the movie. They were not wrong. This, this this film and others like it absolutely drew drew audiences. Um, and one of the ways that the melodramatic plot unfolds is that there is a main character um, who's an established violinist, um, who's a kind of like a respectable um, upper middle class citizen, um, who's a queer individual and um, who falls in love with one of his protégés. They have a they have a um, sort of um, beautiful romance together until they're discovered by a blackmailer who uses paragraph 175 as a way to extort money from them. And so the melodramatic plot line develops from there, and it it ends um, in a in a very tragic death of the uh, suicide of the uh, of the protagonist. And um, the sort of like political mission, Hirschfeld himself plays a role in the film. Um, Hirschfeld kind of intervenes at strategic points of the film in. Order Order to enlighten the masses and so the despair at the end of the film um, was um, mobilized by Hirschfeld um, as a sort of means by which to kind of enlighten the audiences watching this film who might be feeling sad for the fate of the protagonist and tell them listen there's something you can do about it help me abolish paragraph 175 so there's a decided sort of pedagogical mission behind the film mm -hmm. and I mean like uh, the film is I did watch kind of an illicit version of the film uh, before reading your book online. And I mean, it is, it needed a lot of restoration, right? Because of, because of what happened to the, to the film. Can you talk a bit about that history as well? Um, I want to do a, 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 a 
justice where it's needed. So uh, I, there's a couple of uh, institutions and individuals who are doing some remarkable work around it. And first and foremost, the Film Museum in München um, has been advancing, very important, and has been doing a restoration work and has been introducing the film on DVD versions. Now I believe in its fourth edition available um, that was published just or made available just last year in a really crisp, gorgeous new sort of um, digital, digital like restoration. Um, and then James Steakley has been an incredibly important historian of that sort of like censorship history, but also on the sort of material history of this film. And so I wanted to kind of give that, pay that homage to these, to the, on the one hand, this incredible institution, and on one hand to James, who's just been doing such incredible work um, for the last um, decades um, with regard to, to homosexual rights history in Germany, but also specifically to the film. Um, with regard to the, the history of the print itself, so um, the, the film itself was made at a time of relative relaxation of censorship in the German context. And so it was actually introduced on a market at a time when censorship had been abolished. Like one of the promises of the new constitution during the Weimar Republic was that it forbade censorship. And um, a lot of the cultural practitioners who previously experienced suppression in various ways, um, especially under um, imperial and monarchical sort of discourses, were able to do things that they were not able to do before. <laughs> it did not last long, however. Um, uh, so basically, um, by 1920, you have the reintroduction of the first censorship clause, and in no small part, uh, because of cinema. And so the cinema becomes the sort of first um, um, kind of uh, attempt to, and actually a realized attempt um, to introduce censorship into, into the public. And so Anders als die Andern was one of the films that was absolutely banned for public screenings. It was only authorized to be screened for professionals, which, which radically reduced its audience. Um, up until uh, later in the in the 1920s, when Hirschfeld and Oswald came together again, in particular, um, uh, Hirschfeld, who wanted to repurpose some of the material for another project of his, cuts up the film, um, makes it into an episode um, alongside others on sexual practices um, uh, in the 1920s. Um, and um, that film too uh, gets um, subjected to censorship. And the episode that is comprised of the material from Anders als actually is the only one that's censored from it and has to be uh, taken out. Um, however, before this happens, this um, the material for this travels. Uh, and is sent uh, in different contexts throughout the throughout of East Europe and in, especially in a Soviet context. Uh, and this um, small little chopped up episode um, of which there is about 28 minutes of runtime makes it somehow from over over St. Petersburg down to Kiev and um, there gets sort of subjected to censorship too. Uh, it gets uh, transformed into another type of film um, and um, right after World War II um, it gets um, it gets there was there was sort of like new new ways that that film travels back to the German context, um, in particular via some of the sort of like Soviet connections, um, comes back to the GDR context, and from there gets um, uh, exposed to new audiences through homosexual rights organizing networks, um, and uh, slowly um, moves its way into the hands of some of the restoration people at the Film Museum München, who end up doing some of this. 
sort of like recovery work and make it available for today. So today we, we have this fragment of about 28 minutes of runtime that is supplemented with archival material um, that um, was including promotional stills, but also some of the material from Hirschfeld's archive that basically comprises about 51 run minutes of runtime of a movie that was initially at least doubled that time. And I mean, one of the things I liked about the book is that you start by kind of unfolding the conditions of possibility of this film in the early Weimar Republic and through the work of Richard Oswald, um, Richard, Richard, I guess. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that as well? So, um, if I if I can, I'll I'll start with that question and maybe take it a little bit out of a different direction because I'm one of one of the interests that I had with this film was um, so it's been written about before. It's not like scholars have not written about this film before. I'm very grateful for these studies. I myself published a, an article uh, on the film long before I would uh, pursue the research on the book. Um, however, when people usually wrote about this text they always situated it in the history, uh, first and foremost, in the history of the early homosexual rights movement in Germany, which is a really important context for the film. Um, however, when you do that, there is a sort of uh, a little bit of a sort of tendency that, that, that uh, results from it, which is that the film kind of emerges as exclusively an artifact of the early homosexual rights movement. It becomes a sort of like political text and um, uh, a tractat of sorts, like a political program. And it, and it, it, it almost um, then changes form again in this reception history of it. And so one of the things that I was really interested in is centering the film in Richard Oswald's and his sort of like production company, his, his sort of like... Per, positionality on the German pop culture market at the time, he was a pop culture uh, wizard. Like he absolutely was intrigued by the capacities of the pop of popular cinema, shaped the development of multiple popular genres at the time, and was really interested in turning to this film, I think, first and foremost, as a melodrama. And so one of the things that I was trying to do in sort of like turning to Richard Oswald centering this film as a melodrama first and foremost is not to negate the context of the early homosexual rights movement which is an absolutely important context for it but also kind of hold a space a, a substantial amount of space for the fact that most people who went to see this movie did not go to see it because it was part of the early homosexual rights movement but because it was a melodrama with an extremely uh appealing storyline uh, and because it was on a scandalous topic matter. So people actually went to see this movie for that, not necessarily for the homosexual rights um, activism that underpins it, although that's an incredibly important component of it. And I mean, the genre of melodrama itself does important work for your argument in the book. Can you tell us a bit about that as well? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So one of the one of the things that I hope I didn't do with the book is sort of um, critique a little too much the, the potentials that Hirschfeld saw in cinema for the dissemination of his activist and scholarly work with regard to homosexual rights advocacy. I think um, the film absolutely conveys quite a lot of information and, and, and is aligned with his broader sort of interests to popularize um, 
the activism that he was doing and make make people inform the public, enlighten the public public about lives of queer people um, and um, the sort of rights that need to be um, in place in order for those queer people to have uh, access to living the same way that their non-queer counterparts have. Um, but to me, there was an unpersuasive and also a really kind of um, neglectful political mission with regard to how film operates um, and how viewership cultures, uh, in particular those of viewers who are uh, tuned to genre, the genre of the melodrama, would kind of engage with the film. Uh, and one of the ways that I was trying to to sort of interact with Hirschfeld is just, of course, hold on to the context um, and then gently move away from it and and step a, a little bit into the direction of um, early film theory um, and um, scholarship on on melodrama. And it's sort of like audiences effect on an effect it has on audiences by a way to, to articulate a potentially different kind of political potentiality for the film that lies in the mournful imagery that the film presents viewers. One of the things that um, I try to argue is that the severe sadness of the storyline um, stifles political co-optation. And one of the things that Hirschfeld was trying to do is to say, listen, there's this really sad thing. There's this queer corpse that's introduced at the end of the film. He wanted to rehabilitate that corpse and make it function, have a political valence uh, and, and use the sort of like sadness of that moment to basically inspire his audiences to join his, his movement. As admirable as that is, I think that sort of uh, makes an assumption about the capacities of viewers, in particular with regard to sad imagery. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the film is to basically sit with this sadness, in particular this sort of mournfulness that the film introduces um, and um, retrace the mournfulness on the basis of uh, a sort of over 100 year reception history of the film, where viewers absolutely articulated their sort of severe depressive relationship with regard to the subject matter that stands in contradiction to the political potentialities that Hirschfeld wanted to make available for the film. But this isn't to say that there aren't, a, there isn't a politic in that. It's just that that politic might require a little bit of a different um, articulation or, um, and one of the ways that I try to activate that is through, through film theory in particular, through, um, discourses on on mourning and what mourning can actually bring about so for me the sort of sadness of the film facilitates um an intergenerational cross-cultural transhistoric mourning and aware and brings about an awareness of the long struggle on that, that attends queer life that helps us maybe move um in a little bit of a more honest direction with regard to our own relationship to queer progress in our moment today. So um, for me, that that sort of potentiality for politics is absolutely in this film. It just it takes on a little bit of a different valence with regard to maybe the way that Hirschfeld would have liked it to see unfold. And I guess that also kind of stems from the tension between a melodrama and Aufklärungsfilm or like social hygiene film, like the way kind of that 
the way I mean I guess like this the the tension between the aesthetics of the film versus the kind of didactics of it and you also I mean to to kind of talk about uh, the how the film kind of um, does what it does in terms of engaging the audiences with the like the sad feelings as you say uh, you also talk about like embodiment and gesture and kind of the cinematic intimacy can you tell us a bit about that as well I would love to. I think this is an incredibly important component of it. Um, it is true that the film presents what Richard Dyer and his work kind of would call, you know, there's a there are two components to it. Um, there's a sad love story, and then there's a lecture. <laughs> and that lecture is Hirschfeld's sort of didacticism. And there is literally like her, Hirschfeld plays a character, a sort of like sexologist, a physician who kind of enlightens an audience about the sort of intricacies of queer life. <laughs> But the love story and the sort of melodramatic dimension of it takes up quite a lot of space of this film. And um, that, is, that space is replete with um, a very kind of gentle unfolding of a main character's sort of relationship to queer life. Um, that starts out with um, initially um, a sort of very mournful moment whereby the character reads newspaper announcements about suicides of very established respectable gays as they say sorry they were not in the newspaper articles they were not mentioned as uh, as gays but like very respectable figures right and um there is a sort of moment of realization of this character kind of putting one and one together so like the newspapers like oh we don't one of the articles is like oh we don't know why somebody with this stature would want to take his own life um and kerna the protagonist Protagonist, the violinist, the main character of the film, puts one and one together and he's absolutely sees the connection. Um, so there's a sort of like announcement of this like really sad storyline already in the opening, but very quickly we transition into this kind of happy, uh, uh, you know, relationship that he enters with one of his protégés. Um, but that serves a, a very particular function in a film, which is to kind of set up some of the mournful, sad imagery that comes right thereafter, because the sort of happiness and excitement of this new romance, this gay romance on, on, on screen, doesn't last long because the social structures that variously burden queer life at the time slowly become make themselves available. And under the sort of like pressure of these social structures, this protagonist's disposition um, and registers on the body. And so there is this sort of like actual sort of like physical manifestation of some of this this pain of navigating the public life as a queer person of the time that variously shapes how this character carries himself in public, but also um, how he interacts with all of this information. And so one of the things that I do in the book is I try to retrace through these sort of complicated embodiment structures um, and performance styles of Konrad Veit, who plays Kerna, the main uh, protagonist. I try to recreate the the crumbling, the, the, the sort of like um, slowly um, dissolving body uh, mind of the protagonist under the pressures of uh, an anti-queer hetero 
patriarchy. Um, and uh, to me, this just absolutely registers in the pain of the, bo of the body. And, um, and therein lies that sort of like deep engagement process of melodrama too, because it gives you access to these impossible struggles that characters face. Um, and you are supposed to, as a viewer, somehow interact with that. And usually that interaction runs by a recourse to uh, emotion and um, a, a sentimentality. And um, these kind of like structures of sentimentality are very, very, very important for the understanding of the film's broader sort of aesthetic operations. And I mean, that I, I guess also brings us to the question of, I mean, sad feelings, but also uh, using Heather Love's uh, term, feeling backwards. Um, we already talked about it a little bit, but like, um, what does this do? Like, what is the, I mean, you, you put it very nicely, like the, what's the use of the, what's the political use of the corpse? Uh, what's the use of uh, feeling backwards? in relation to Anders uh, uh, and then. Um, I, I am a huge fan of Heather Love's work and I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, it has, it, to me, been a really sort of, not just a, a, a means to understand my own sort of like scholarly interests better, but as a queer person, I find um, some sort of um, comfort in in the the brutal honesty of of the work that, that that book in particular advances and so one of the main ideas within it is that say in the in the sort of popular queer pop queer imagination like the popular queer imagination of our sort of like neoliberal north american present um queer optimism and queer progress are incredibly important affective structures that underpin whatever might be characterized as a queer rights movement in particular in the aftermath of gay marriage etc right and and yeah uh and there is a sort of tendency that the sort of the attainment of rights is a negation of anti-queerness, meaning that by reaching by reaching certain rights, queer people are no longer discriminated against, which is as as we know absolutely not true. Um, but there is a sort of tendency to valorize progress. And the affective structures of progress, which are all in the realm of the positive, um, and kind of viewed suspiciously negativity and, and negative affect. So um, people who are depressed apparently are not part of sort of like progressivist queer organizing, right? Because they're they're too they're they're downers, right? Like and 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 negative affect as a sort of depressive force, not a really good thing. Thing through which to organize. I mean, through negative affective theories, um, which have been so incredibly important for me, including the work of Heather Love and others, you realize that that's just absolutely not true, right? That there is actually quite a lot of great political potential within negativity. And that usually in Heather, so for instance, in Heather Love's conception, one of the sort of notions of feeling backward, which is sort of like um, turning to things like melancholia, turning to feelings um, of depression and sadness and shame and these kinds of like structures of feeling that are absolutely part and parcel of the queer affective archive 
today and historically can be incredibly liberating in particular because we might be sort of like um, activating for ourselves a venue um, to participate in contemporary queer discourses. If you are like me, a person who is a sort of chronic melancholic you know like uh you are you're absolutely able to see valence in that and for her um work this means that um the sort of um queer negativity in particular sort of structures of mourning could actually be a means by which to nurture a more honest relationship to our present so that through kind of like uh, activating and taking serious affective negativity you're able to see that the world is still an an unhappy and and a deeply dangerous place for queer people today and so for me one of the things that this film does um, and one of the way theses that i that i advance in the book is that watching anders als die anderen today is a sort of practice of feeling backward and turning to this arc this this artifact of of sadness and mourning the, uh, an artifact of sadness that facilitates mourning today is a means by which we can be reminded of the long struggle for queer rights but not just queer rights but the, that there is this sort of like long journey ahead of us yet to go to reach what we could call queer liberation which in my perspective has not been reached especially if you think about um, queer life on a planetary scale if you think of queer life in a way that attempts to um, racializing class struggles that variously inform and um, still kind of shape queer life today uh, that the world is indeed in some of the most quote progressive and quote spaces still still a dangerous world for some queer people and so i feel like watching under salstianda actually reminds us of that in our most delusional moments of optimism these sad movies are precisely serving that political function for us as a reminder to keep that struggle strong i mean let's i guess uh, end on this powerful <laughs> note uh, but before we end i'm also curious what you're what you're working on right now what's the next project oh thank you so much i'm i'm working on a on a couple of projects um i'm positioning myself as a queer studies person uh, with interest in media studies but there's there's a there's a personal project and then there's an academic project and i mean to to me those are always both but in a neoliberal academic landscape you almost, almost sometimes need these markers. Um, so I want to tell you about the personal project first because I, um, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this. Um, I am, um, I myself, am, I was born in former Yugoslavia in what is today Bosnia, and I uh, was born in a Muslim family and um, grew up in, in what I like to call the queer Bosnian diaspora. <laughs> But what that queer Bosnian diaspora is, is not necessarily like, you know, there are no handbooks for that. There's no guides for that. There's no like how to, you know, like there, uh, I mean, Google it, you'll, you'll find very little information about it, right? And this isn't to say it doesn't exist, right? It's just that the cultural practices of it have been such in this complicated world, whereby on the one hand, the queer Bosnian diaspora practitioners, if you want to call them, use methods that are not interested 
interested in the archive as we valorize it in a sort of academic context. At the same time, I want to hold space that there have been sort of like hostile structures which have been suppressing the development of this archive in a public way. So I am actually trying to to work in both of these arenas at the same time. So I'm, I'm writing a book of personal essays. It's called Tetka Theory, A Queer Life in a Bosnian Diaspora, which is based on my own sort of lived experience in which I retrace my families uh, and my personal lived experience from uh, Yugoslavia, um, my, the refugee migration route to Germany and my sort of um, subsequent migration to the North American context and try to articulate different sides of um, affect um, and um, resource making for people such as myself um, and make them available in a hopefully humorous at times also extremely depressive way. So um, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of playful format of um, where, whereby each chapter kind of takes on the form of like sitting down over a cup of coffee and cigarettes <laughs> with your aunties and chatting about some some of the things that are going on in your life. Um, so that's that's one project. I'm very very excited about that, and I'm I was very curious to note that a bunch of sort of uh, scholarly and other organizations were willing to fund it. To be quite honest, I was very surprised by that. Um, so I'm, uh, and I'm very grateful for that, but also very surprised by that. Um, and then the other project is I'm pursuing a um, scholar, more scholarly project, uh, uh, which might be uh, inappropriately perceived as a sort of stab against sexology again. Uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm interested in occult and a media history and a media theory of the occult, in particular as it intersects with queer studies. Um, the usual sort of like Foucauldian inspired sort of narrative of the history of sexuality is, you know, the, the, the homosexual, the, the idea of the homosexual was born in a clinic or, or you know, there's that sort of like famous like um, notion uh, that variously gets to be, I think, still very much staged and informed a, a, a lot of the, the, schol the, the scholarship on the history of sexology absolutely centers that, you know, the, the birth of the homosexual, they're like, you know, so like, you know, before Magnus Hirschfeld, no one knew how to call like, no, there were no queer people or something like that. You know what I mean? Like these sort of like impulses. I don't think those scholars would actively ever say something like that, but like there is this sort of like move to kind of like allocate um, to sexology a really kind of prominent place in a, in a history of sexuality. And by turning to the occult, I'm trying to showcase that there were absolutely much more different and much more complicated and much more diffuse and democratic means by which people were making knowledge about queerness and their queer lives through things like tarot card readings, um, co coffee ground uh, culture, you know, like um, esoteric practices, which were uh, ironically not esoteric, you know, in the sense of that we're not just reserved for secure, select few people, but they were actually available to many, many, many people. If you didn't have education and resources to read the Jahrbuch für sexuelle Zwischenstufen, you most certainly had enough money to go get your tarot cards read, you know, so... I'm trying to kind of shift the focus away a little bit, but also just make available this extremely complicated world of knowledge making that lies within these structures of the of what I think commonly we would call the occult, but they're much more complicated than that. So, so that's my new sort of bigger project, a big book project on the on a on a media theory and and uh, of of the occult, a queer media theory of the occult. I mean, as a tarot reader and. Uh... I mean, I work also on German spirituality at the moment. I really, really look forward to reading this next book as well. Thank you so much, Irvin, for joining us today.
Thanks so much. I appreciate you. It was a pleasure.